0: The National Archives podcast series, From Deviance to Diversity, Finding Sexuality and Sexual Science in the Archives, presented by Dr. Leslie Hall as part of the National Archives Diversity Week. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm very delighted to be here and telling you about the wonderful treasures we have at the Wellcome Library. We cannot really of course compete with the National Archives in the range and diversity of materials we have, but I think we do have some very exciting materials. I don't know how much people know about the Wellcome Library. founded on the collections that were started by Sir Henry Wellcome, who was an American pharmaceutical entrepreneur, who came to the UK in the late 19th century to bring up-to-date Yankee know-how about marketing pharmaceuticals to the sleepy old UK, and he was very successful. But what he really wanted to do, what he was making his money for, was to establish a museum which would reflect his very broad vision of the history of medicine and health throughout the ages and worldwide. And he saw this as the central motif to understanding human society as a whole. And the museum collections are now dispersed, and the bulk are at the Science Museum, and there are a selection that are on display in the Medicine Man exhibition in the Wellcome collection in Euston Road. The library continues to collect, catalogue and make available materials relating to medicine, health and related areas, and we're funded by the major medical research charity, the Wellcome Trust and welcomes vision for his collection. Unlike many collectors of the period and people curating museums in the late 19th century, he didn't ignore questions of sexuality and sex-related artefacts. He didn't segregate these artefacts into a secret cabinet, which you had to know the right code words and who to ask to look at, but he placed them on open display, which was in the context of he saw his museum as designed for serious scholarship rather than casual visitors and I think this tradition is being reinvigorated with the projected sex gallery in the welcome collection opening in the autumn we hold in the archives and library the archives of the museum and that this reflects other institutions recognising what amazing collections in this area Welcome had and asking for photographs for their displays and it includes correspondence with collectors. And a lot of these pictures Are from welcome images and are now freely available in both high and low res versions under Creative Commons licensing from the website of the library because of this interest of welcomes the library collections contain very solid basic holdings of the pioneering texts of sexological (laughs) science and these are the subject of one of our current digitization projects although i have to say watch this space because i think so far that there are only about two digitized volumes actually available but this is in progress and the library continues to acquire both primary works in this area and secondary works of historiographical analysis and we are continuing to collect relevant archival and manuscript materials and there is also significant holdings of images in all media, moving image and sound, and ephemera. And more information on these can be found on the library website. And I've taken a fairly broad view of what the Welcome can offer the person who's interested in studying the history of sexual science and how sexual diversity has been perceived, not just the archives and manuscripts, but the visual items, and our very rich collection of ephemera, which is one-sheet items, flyers, leaflets, trade cards, posters, etc. Looking back to the early beginnings, one might say, of sexual science, it's very much subsumed under the idea of curiosities of nature. And so you'll find various books which include plates showing hermaphrodite genitalia. There are a number of visual representations of the rather prurient and racist interest taken in Hottentop women because they were considered to have somewhat unusual confirmations and they were also of course exhibited in freak shows. There's a sad and well-known case of Sartier Bartman, the hottentot Venus who was exhibited in European capitals in the early 19th century We have also quite recently acquired an early 19th century French manuscript concerning the investigations of what were meant to be scientific but sounds to me a bit kind of prurient and laddish, investigations undertaken by these explorers at the Cape. They were coming back from the Baudouin expedition to Australia. They stopped off at the Cape and were given access to a number of local women for scrutiny by the Dutch medical superintendent of a local hospital. And this is interesting from a lot of points of view. It's a bit distasteful, but I think it's also rather interesting. There's also this interest in intersexual and conditions which kind of muddle up the boundaries of gender, for example, very hirsute women. And a number of our items in early 19th century ephemera are actually postcards or posters from freak shows who are promoting these as among their attractions. There's also press notice there, I think it's actually late 18th or early 19th century, of a case of a female husband. And Of course, these, these continue well into the 20th century, where you have this apparently perfectly normal, happily married couple, and then, as a result of some accident, the husband is revealed to have been a woman. So there is some evidence for that as well. And certainly love between women and issues of gender masquerade for, you know, most of the 19th century were, I think, regarded more in the light of curiosities of nature than, than a subject for scientific analysis. I mean, we have, for example, in the top left-hand corner there, the ladies of Clangochlin, who were a couple of Irish gentlewomen who had eloped with one another because one of them was being sexually harassed by her cousin's husband, and the other one was under pressure from her mother to become a nun, and they wanted to live together, and they, eventually their families came round, and they lived together in what's described as rural seclusion in Klang Auckland in Wales. In fact, they had a whole stream of visitors come to see them because they represented this paradigm of a kind of ideal romantic devotion to one another. And they, they kept up masses of correspondence with, with um, you know, the, the literary and, and intellectual great and good of their day. So I mean, rural seclusion doesn't really describe what they were about. A rather different take on a female friendship is this really rather curious satirical print of Lady stration and Lady Warwick snogging in a park while their husbands look on absolutely horrified. And it's quite difficult to know what to make of this. I asked a friend of mine who works on early 19th century satirical prints, and she said, like, girl-on-girl action is very rare. <laughs> I don't know whether this is, you know, satirical printmakers were suddenly, oh, look, there's a scandal about Lady Strachan and Lady Warwick. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo. Or whether it's actually about their husbands because Lord Strachan was an admiral who had not covered himself with glory during the Napoleonic campaign, so I wonder if it's actually about his manhood rather than his wife's sexual tastes. Then you've also got women who disguise themselves as men to pursue either marrying a woman or careers that were not open to women at the time. And the most famous examples here are James Miranda Barry, who was a British army surgeon, who served all over the British Empire. And then when the body was being laid out after death, the woman who was laying it out came out and said, "'This is a woman, and moreover one that hath borne a child.'" We know quite a lot about Barry's career. We don't know much about Barry's personal life or what the sense of personal identity might have been. Was it, I am a woman who must disguise myself as a man in order to be doctor? Is it, actually, I'm really a man, you know, I just don't look like one? Because even during life, people thought Barry was a slightly odd duck with a very high voice and very short. But people didn't say this too loudly because Barry was constantly challenging people to duels. And I just wonder if Barry's identity was, I'm a doctor, damn it. And another doctor was Mary Walker, who was an American woman's surgeon. And in fact, here she's practically in female drag. It's Amelia Bloomer's reform dress, but normally she wore much more masculine garments. And she served, dressed as a man, as a surgeon on the Union side in the American Civil War and won the Congressional Medal for that service. These are considered interesting cases and people kind of think about and speculate. I'm not sure there's a lot of scientific interest. As I'm sure I don't have to mention in this particular setting where there is so much of the records of it, male homosexual conduct in the UK during the 19th century was a criminal matter. Men who were found to be engaging in relationships with other men were liable to a range of clinical prosecutions for sodomy or attempted sodomy or soliciting. You don't really find them as objects of the medical gaze very often in the UK. But you do find occasional cases in records of lunatic asylums, not very many. Perhaps a few more will become available now that we are digitising the records of our holdings of 19th century private lunatic asylums which will make them much more accessible for people to look at but people who have worked on them just have not found many cases where there was some form of male male sexual conduct but we do have the case of the reverend mr patterson in Ticehurst house asylum in the 1850s who among other things took hold of his attendant in an indecent manner And was also on various occasions tried to get into bed with the attendants. On the other hand, um, Mr. Patterson was clearly not behaving in a manner suitable for a clergyman of the Church of England. At one point, he threw a chair through a window, and he frequently expressed himself in very unclergyman-like language. So I think this is his feeling up the attendant is probably part of a much larger problem of breakdown of appropriate social behaviour. Similarly, Ernest Adkins, who was at Holloway Sanatorium in the 1890s, seems to have not taken on board certain appropriate ways of going about things. He was discovered climbing up into the dormitory at the Naval College near where he lived and said, I want to get in and sleep with one of the cadets. It wasn't a particular cadet, he just fancied a naval cadet. And he didn't see anything wrong with this. And I think someone who's doing that, I think they would have felt he was possibly certifiable, even had it been a girls' school, because you don't do that. Climbing into somewhere in the middle of the night and not seeing anything wrong with that, I think that suggested that he was somewhat skew with to social norms. The one thing that they were really concerned about in the psychiatric system of the nineteenth century was masturbation. That was the thing that really worried them. Um, in Ticehurst there is this register and it mentions all these cases of patients who had to have their hands tied up at night to prevent them abusing themselves. However, on the continent things were somewhat different and you get some psychiatrists, alienists, people who are working in the mental health field, who are thinking about the way that they are encountering cases where they have people who are not, as it were, following what is considered the absolutely natural thing of attraction to the opposite sex, but are attracted to the same sex, and also particularly in the work of Kraft Abing, He was particularly intrigued by the fact of men who did not fulfil the concept of the dominant male but wanted to be submissive to women. So that was a problem for him too. He started out in the public asylum system and then he became successful and moved into private consulting work. And in the course of this, he encountered men who although they had desires towards their own sex were respectable members of society, they were professionals, they were civil servants, they were army officers, they were even aristocrats, they were making a contribution to the well-being of the Austrian Empire. They were good citizens. So he was trying to think about this and while he's still very much thinking about it in terms of late 19th century degenerationist ideas, he is basically sympathetic to these people. And he did join the campaign that was set up to repeal the paragraphs in the Penal Code that penalised homosexual behaviour between men. Not that this was very successful, but anyway it's quite extraordinary when you think of the things that happened. He died in 1902 and his papers were discovered in the family home in the 1990s by a Dutch historian called Harry Oosterhuis, who's written an absolutely wonderful book about Craft A being called Stepchildren of Nature. When you think of all the things that rolled over Central Europe during those years, the survival of these is really quite extraordinary. We now have them in the welcome. There are case notes, correspondence, various case reports that people sent to kraft and these p- photographs, which are absolutely intriguing. Unfortunately, there's very little information about why he had them. Did people send them to him? Did they say this is me dressed up? So they're intriguing, but unfortunately not a lot of information about them. And you can really see how influential he was, that the first edition of Psychopathia Sexualis is a teeny slender volume published in 1886. By the time of his death, it's this thick, because people were sending him cases. People were asking to consult him. He was just this enormously influential figure in getting the subject into being something that was discussed. And then you've got his younger colleague, Magnus Hirschfeld, who was also an activist trying to get the laws against homosexual behaviour repealed in Germany and was doing research, was activist in a lot of different ways. He was, I think, he was probably politically rather more left-wing than Kraft Abing. And after the First World War, Hirschfeld set up in Berlin his Institut für Sexual Wissenschaft, um, Institute for Sexual Knowledge which became a place of pilgrimage throughout europe for the studies he was making and he was particularly interested in homosexuality he was homosexual himself he was also jewish and in 1933 when the nazis came to power they destroyed the institute they took all the library and museum collections burnt them on a bonfire Bernd Hirschfeld, who was fortunately out of the country at the time, in effigy. And so the records on Magnus Hirschfeld are very thin, very scattered. You have to look in a lot of different places and there are still huge gaps. We have significant representation of his published works in the library at the Wellcome. We have a letter he wrote to a psychiatrist called Josef Strasser, who was writing in the 1930s to a a whole range of people who were working in sexual science, asking, how did you get into this? So we have his letter, which is actually saying why he thought he got into it, why he thought it was important. We also, quite recently, acquired the papers of Charlotte Wolff, who was a younger colleague of his, and who in the 1970s, wrote a biography of Hirschfeld, which was the first biography in English. And we have her research papers for that. And it's very fortunate she was just about in time to catch a number of the last surviving people who'd known Hirschfeld and to get their reminiscences. So although I think there are some problems with her biography of him, because she was actually quite old when she wrote it, and I think relying more on memory than actually looking things up. she did acquire this really rather valuable archive of reminiscences and memorabilia that people gave to her. And of course the British sage of sex was Havelock Ellis, who was being a school teacher. He was British, his father was a sea captain, who left him in Australia when he was still quite young. And he was being a school teacher in the outback and he received this revelation that his life's work was to study sex and to try and alleviate people's fears around it. So he studied medicine, qualified, but he never really practiced medicine. He just felt this was necessary to give him credibility in the scientific sphere when investigating sex. Very early on in his career, he collaborated with the literary man, John Addington Simmons, to write a book on sexual inversion and this ran into a number of problems and was eventually prosecuted for obscenity, which Ellis found rather devastating, though it didn't actually put him off continuing to write on his studies in the psychology of sex. I think it contributed him becoming a rather reclusive figure who tended to communicate mostly by correspondence. his papers are very scattered there is a substantial collection in the British Library Department of Manuscripts which was in the hands of his stepson and was sold to them in I think the late 80s but there are bits and pieces all over the place in North America both in USA and Canada and we have various bits and pieces in our collections at the Wellcome and I think This shows the importance of not just looking for an individual's papers, but looking for the people who were associated with them. Uh, Because I think you can get an awful lot out of that. And I think you see this with the Ellis material that we have. We do have a few stray letters of his, which came into our hands through various means. There is his letter to Josef Strasser about how he got into being a sexologist. There is a letter of his to an inquirer who's worried about his effeminate nature. And Ellis is his typical, like, soothing, don't worry about it, let's be cool about this self to this man. He was always very reassuring to people. But there's also his correspondence with Carlos Peyton Blacker, who was the General Secretary of the Eugenics Society. They had correspondence on various matters. There's also a file and various material in the Eugenics Society archive relating to Ellis. Although we don't have much, we do have various bits and pieces if you look for them. Thinking about this and the idea of sexual deviation and you know people who are not normal, well we've got various things in our collections which are about people starting to say how natural is the natural and normal and in the papers of Mari Stopes, for example, who is one of a number of people from the 1920s, who is saying, well, is sex between men and women as kind of natural and simple as people think? Or is it something we actually have to think about? Is it something people have to learn about? Are people very ignorant about female sexuality? So there is an element which is part of this story, which isn't always talked about, that as well as people starting th- to think about people who have desires and feelings which do not conform to the norm, there is also this, well, what is the norm? How natural is the norm? How normal is the natural, Etc. And this is very much an international story. I think this is partly because in any country you have a handful of people who are interested in investigating sex and they're often quite stigmatised within their own communities, but they find these international colleagues. And there's a lot of toing and fro and communication and the holding of international congresses, which enables people to get together and discuss matters of mutual interest. And there's the World League for Sexual Reform, which is set up by Hirschfeld. I mean, Hirschfeld is very much a mover and shaker in getting people together, in setting up organisations, in agitating for reforms. And its own records do not survive. But there are bits and pieces all over the place. Again, there's a file. I'm not quite sure what, why there is a file in the Eugenic Society. It just seems to consist entirely of literature that was put out by the world league for sexual reform which i think they probably sent to the society and just got filed and kept so we have this material which is actually quite rare in that file there is also some material again in charlotte Wolfe's papers she was given a number of items relating to the world league by dora russell when she was collecting materials for her biography of hirschfeld there's also some photographs in the Family Planning Association archive, which were given to them by Dr. Edward Elkin, which he says are of the 1929 London Congress of the World League, which has fat volume of published proceedings, and these are in the Wellcome Library. But actually, I think he was wrong, and I think it's actually the 1932 Congress, which was held in Brno in Czechoslovakia, because there's a picture of the members of the Congress at Mendel's tomb. Mendel Memorial, I don't think it's actually Mendel's tomb. And there's much more information on the London Congress and the British branch among Dora Russell's papers in the International Institute of Social History in Amsterdam. And there are various little bits and pieces elsewhere, but it's still quite difficult to track down something that was, you know, an international organisation that attracted the attention of quite a lot of significant people. Norman Hare is somebody who was something between a disciple, impresario, and fanboy of the really gigantic figures in sex reform in the interwar world, such as Hirschfeld and Havelock Ellis. And he was very much like wanting to be their best friend and to promote their work and so on. He's involved in the birth control movement. He's involved in all sorts of sex reform things. But his papers, you mostly find in other people's, other organisations' collections and also his publications. There's a very small collection of his surviving papers which includes his correspondence with Ellis and Hirschfeld at the University of Sydney, but the trouble is Hare came to England from Australia, then he went back at the time of the Second World War, and then he comes back to London, and this is a scenario which tends to be not very good for the survival of someone's papers if they move around a lot. They tend to think, oh, I don't need this, I'll throw this away, I can't be doing with all this luggage course some people wanted to get away from the whole messy people aspect of researching sex so they're moving into graphs and charts as opposed to accounts of personal experience. In the case of the MRC and its sex hormone committee I, I imagine there must be records of that here in the MRC's archives but we'd certainly have a substantial amount which fetched up in Sir Alan Park's papers relating to that committee, so maybe they're not with the MRC archives. And they were all about, we do not want to know about humans and their messiness and their emotions and their sexual cycles. Let's talk about mice, rats, and if we can do this in test tubes, that's even better. On the sense that this enterprise is is international, indeed global, You've got AP Pillay in Bombay, who sets up Marriage Hygiene as a journal, which is meant to be an international journal of research on issues around sex and sexuality and marriage counselling and, and sex reform. And after the war, it's renamed International Journal of Sexology. And there is quite a bit about this journal and relations with Pillay in the papers of Edward Fife Griffith, which we have at the Welcome, because. Griffith was the British editor of this Bombay-published journal in the 1930s. There's also a fairly substantial amount of correspondence in America in the Countway Library in Boston with Norman Himes, who became involved with Pillay after the Second World War. I'm not sure there's actually much in Bombay. I think it's a fairly complete run of Marriage Hygiene International Journal of Sexology At the Welcome. We also have a substantial number of collections relating to significant figures in British psychoanalysis. And of course, a lot of them were thinking about homosexuality. I'm never quite sure with psychoanalysts what it is they're thinking about when they're thinking about homosexuality. Are they actually thinking about people having sex with somebody of the same sex? Or are they thinking about some deep thing going on in the psyche and the subconscious, you know, the whole idea that this man is Don Juan and he sleeps with millions of women. He's really homosexual. But anyway, they are thinking about it and there are ways they are addressing it. And of course, they are saying this is one way of treating it. And of course, whether it did any good or not is, I think, still under advisance. But obviously, being psychoanalyzed was probably much less painful and unpleasant than chemical castration as happened to alan turing and again you've got this rise in the idea that normality is itself problematic and needs working on so you get things like the rise of marriage guidance the rise of ideas about sex education and the incorporation of these into a wider vision of public health and this is just me flagging up the Wellcome's digitized medical officer of health reports for greater london which is an absolutely wonderful resource simply because until you start looking you don't realize what an enormous range of things like marriage guidance medical officers of health were actually interested in it's not all about drains and epidemics it's about a whole range of absolutely amazing things and then you've got the marriage guidance council being set up you've got the tavistock institute doing research on marital therapy there's all this we're not quite sure the normal and natural is no longer seem quite so normal simple and, and then of course the Wolfenden committee which is extensively documented in the national archives we do have a few things at the welcome relating to medical organisations and individuals which gave evidence or thought about giving evidence or were concerned about this committee. And it's interesting, the Medical Women's Federation was concerned. They seem to have been far more concerned than most of the more male-dominated medical organisations at the time, and they were producing evidence. Though I think one of the things they were expected to be producing evidence on was homosexuality in women. Was it a bad thing? Their opinion was, no, it's not a bad thing, which I think was great. It's quite interesting how laid-back and tolerant they were on the subject. And we also have Donald Winnicott, who, of course, is another distinguished figure in the Annals of British Psychoanalysis, writing to a colleague of his, Thomas Stapleton, about getting up some evidence for the Wolfenden Committee. And once the um, Wolfenden Committee had implemented in law with the 1967 decriminalisation of homosexuality. It's kind of interesting to see the rather conflicting opinions of medical officers of health about the implications of this. And there's a certain kind of anxiety at the time, generally, about the perceived increase in venereal diseases. And some of these medical officers of health are going, whoa, whoa teenagers, immigrants, homosexuals, and others are saying, oh, good, now it's decriminalised. We can do some serious public health education work around this. So there are kind of different takes, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about these reports, about the different positions that are being expressed by public health doctors. Back to Charlotte Wolff. I mean, this is just an amazing collection if you're interested in... Ideas around homosexuality, about Hirschfeld, about sex reform, and of course her own life as a woman who was bisexual or, I don't know, possibly more lesbian than, than actually bisexual, who had been part of the Hirschfeld circle, who wrote an autobiography which was very much thinking about her own issues of sexual identity and orientation. And she also, in the late 60s, started researching a book on love between women by questionnaires, by getting people to submit autobiographical accounts of their life as a self-identity, as a lesbian. And I think you can see this reflects changing attitudes and it was really rather well received, critically. I think people had concerns over her methodology, which was, I think, not terribly rigorous. But they thought it was interesting, they thought this was a subject should be ventilated. They did not go, oh my God, this is a horrid immoral book. So, you know, I think this does illuminate changing attitudes by the 1970s. And then a few years later, using similar methodology, she published a book on bisexuality and in her papers. We have her notes. We have the accounts that were sent in by individuals. We have the completed questionnaires. We have responses by readers. We have her comments on when she went out to speak about this, what people said, what questions they asked. We have cuttings of the press response. I think there's quite a lot of interesting stuff there that's still not been fully explored. Well, we haven't had this all that long, really. By the early 1980s, what happened was that, although attitudes have been changing, things had been becoming more liberal. AIDS, HIV came along, and obviously there was a lot of kickback against what was perceived as the dangers of decriminalising homosexuality, the permissive society generally. But there was also a whole new approach to health education, safer sex, telling people targeting messages, going out into the gay community, providing various services and a whole kind of new idea about how you deal with sexually transmitted diseases, which was no longer about saying, don't have sex. If you have got a disease, here is the address of your PD clinic. It was very much about how not to get it, what sort of sexual practices were safe. And this also stimulated research into what sexual practices were actually being practiced between men. And you have the Project Sigma Sex Diaries, which we have. Unfortunately, they're on microfiche, which is a bit of a deterrent, but they are a very useful diary project where Anthony Coxon and his team got men to keep these diaries of what they were actually doing sexually with other men over a period of time. And this did include men who, although they were having sex with men, were not necessarily gay-identified. So it's actually very useful as a sense of what's happening in that and you've also got various education initiatives to try and get across to people what is and is not safe or unsafe and the thing with trying to reduce people's paranoia about things which were not actually going to convey infection. One of the collections we have at the Wellcome is an ephemera collection of prostitute phone book cards. And these are obviously very diverse, but what you see, there are quite a lot which deal with the whole transsexual thing and the fetishisation of the pre-op transsexual and the kind of performative lesbian action type of card. So there's this objectification and othering there. But then, on the other hand, from the pamphlet collection here, I just got a few things that show there have been enormous changes around health and welfare for gay people. They have rights, there are benefits. There are various what to do if you're getting older, etc. It's entirely different from the early 19th century. And I just thought I'd say a few things about the services we offer at the Wellcome. We have an ambitious digitisation programme. Last year, we launched Codebreakers on the History of Genetics, which includes the archives of the Eugenics Society and the papers of CP Blacker, which have significant um, overlaps with issues of sexual reform and sexual research. This is all available to people who are online from anywhere remotely to individuals who have registered as library users, and this is downloadable as JPEGs or PDFs. We have various online catalogues, we have thematic guides to archive and manuscript sources. Because I think this was seen as (coughs) very much a global project, and as I say, the people did feel that their allies were not necessarily in the home country, they were abroad and because of the things that happened in Germany in the 1930s, you also got a lot of people having to leave Germany and move elsewhere. Collections are very scattered. There's material in Amsterdam at the International Institute of Social History, papers of Max Hodan, who was a younger colleague of Hirschfelder in Stockholm, there's material in Washington, in Boston, various parts of the USA and in Norman Hare's papers in Sydney. Also his massive collection of sexological and pornographic literature. So that is the place in Australia to go. Anyway, that's just an overview of some of the things we have in the welcome, some of the places you might want to go, some of the things that would have to be looked at if you're researching this subject. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 29th of January 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.